How does a society advance without being able to use metal? Is punching trees a viable method of agriculture? What's in a name? And what is the plural of rhinoceros? I'm Carrie. I'm Josh. And I'm Monica. And this is the World Builders Podcast. Hello there. I'm Carrie. I'm Josh. And I'm Monica. And this is the World Builders Podcast, because you can't build a planet without a plan. In this podcast, we, your hosts, explore settings in genre fiction by crafting them here and now for you, our listeners. Last time, we discussed how the planet of Xanthuru came to be, as well as a little bit about how the presence of magical energy affected the world's development. This time, we'll be exploring the people who lived there and how they and the planet shaped each other. Because as we discussed last time, people and their environment are symbiotes. Exactly. You can't have one without the other. And uh, more often than not, they wind up being either mutually beneficial, mutually destructive, or settle into that nice little gray area where they actually manage to coexist. Like oxpeckers and rhinoceros. Rhi rhinoceros. I don't know how to say the plural of rhinoceros. Who? Like rhinos and oxpeckers. There we go. <laughs> and that's your animal fact for this episode. Uh, well, there, that's one. <laughs> we'll have a counter by the end. Ding. Uh, yeah, take it away. Well, we did talk a lot about humans last episode because, go figure, that's our bias, right? We're humans, and so we are going to talk about humans in the worlds that we build. It's another thing that we talked about last week. Our biases shape how we build our worlds. But you mentioned that humans are one of the younger races on Xanthuru. Are we human or are we denser? Yes. <laughs> I mean, my sign is vital, but yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, as I had said last time, uh, they are one of the more recently magically endowed peoples upon the uh at least the primary zone uh again for those of us who are or those of you rather those of us we the people in order to form a more coherent rambling uh for those of you who are already familiar with xanthru from its former podcast incarnation uh would know the main starting area of alterin there were several uh, various peoples who called that rather large landmass to their home, and uh, humans were just one of them, and uh, the more recent move-in, so to speak, uh, having developed rather rapidly from their uh, nomadic hunter-gatherer predecessors into the uh, civilized medieval fantasy analog that we know and love. So if the humans are more of a recent development... Who was there first? That's actually a very good question, and you're going to get varying answers depending on which one of them you ask. So we'll ask it this way, since we're doing it, since we've been looking so far through the scope of humans or human analogs, is there a, any particular account that, that the society scholars can agree on as to who was there first, or maybe one in particular that you want to talk about first that one faction says was there first. 
So generally speaking, from a scholarly standpoint, you're going to get one of two of the inhabitants of the area as the uh, the grandparents, so to speak, the forerunners. And that would be either the Baralanx or the, and this is the part where I devastate my throat, the <coughs> or as they're more commonly known, the earth shells. And I just want to pause really quick to point out the name of this race, this actual race, has sounds in it that humans cannot pronounce, which is normal because they are not human. They have their own repertoire of sounds. So Josh created a term by which the people with mouths similar to ours would know them by, which is the same thing the people in that world would be doing. Moving on. It's important, though, because let's be fair, if you can't make the sounds, you can't actually use the language. Exactly. So yes, we have two similar but rather different uh, species, so to speak, that you'd have a hard time telling which was there first, because one of them likes to spend their times in the forests, among the plants and the trees, cultivating the land and living with nature, and one of them likes to spend their time deep underground, far away from everyone and everything, because they don't much like outsiders. Both of those are me. <laughs> But do they have eyes? That's a good question. And not one anybody has an answer to. And this is where, when developing a world, I made a very decisive choice. Because as you noticed, I used two sets of descriptors that could very easily fall into the purview of two very conventional and well-known and loved fantasy races, the elves and the dwarves. These are not them. When I was doing the revitalization for the first run-through of the Xanthru game on the forum, uh, 17thshard.com, for those uh, who might be wanting to try and find it, I decided that I did not want to fall into the traditional fantasy stereotypes of human, elf, dwarf, orc, goblin, so on and so forth, and basically be pulling all of my peoples from the monster manual. Yes, if you want to do that, if you want a more stock standard fantasy realm, that is perfectly fine. It was Josh's choice to not do that. I wanted to flex my creative muscles and see what I could come up with that would fill those same needs, so to speak, the kind of things that people would want to see without getting the exact copy paste, so to speak. <laughs> without without going to the to the Tolkien uh... Yeah, without having to crack open my Silmarillion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I decided to create my own races using similar tropes, but wanting to give them their own unique, distinct flavor that would set them apart while still filling that same niche. And I think we'll make this a quick start by going with the Earth Shells because they are the more mysterious and less well-documented of the species on the continent that we are focusing most of this discussion on. Because as I've said, big world, room for a lot of different species out there, but we're sticking more to the, uh, the main story, so to speak, so far. And the earth shells are a, and I'm gonna throw out a big word, they're xenophobic they do not like other people in their space at all. They are very 
reclusive, they are not seen much at all, and even when they are seen, people really have a hard time understanding them. And that harkens back to the way that most other species refer to them, because when you see an earth shell, you are looking at a large walking pile of rocks. Like someone just ripped a chunk out of a mountainside, made it vaguely humanoid shape, and there you are. And that is why their language is very hard to decipher for most people, because it's made by grinding stone together. Yeah, so while they might be hearing and sensing the different tremors and vibrations and the subtle alterations of pitch that you get by doing this particular piece of rock against this particular rock, the people they're communicating with are not going to pick up on any of those subtleties. Right. They'll think it's just rocks rumbling rather than, <laughs> rather than actual speech. And so, yeah, the reason I wanted to bring these guys up first, because while there's not much known about them as a species, mostly, hey, these guys are moving piles of rock and they really don't like other people much. It's primarily because they seem to be adverse to the sounds of society. They don't seem to particularly enjoy loud, thunderous noises, big metropoli where there's a lot of people milling around making the kind of cacophony we're really used to hearing. And nobody's really quite sure why that is because they can't really get a whole lot of them to talk too readily. Again, go figure. They don't get out much. But the reason that they're an important species on this continent is because being denizens of the underground and not really liking contact with other species much, they have created essentially a monopoly on metal. Yeah, because metal is underground. And the way you described it, it almost sounds like because they're so subtle to sounds in order to be able to perceive their own language and probably being very in tune with the earth, our normal noise probably sounds very loud to them, right? Because they're very sensitive. That and maybe they're reclusive. They aren't around a lot of people all the time. We're just used to it. <laughs> yeah, and so if you take a race of people that is very sensitive to sounds and you start blowing up a mountain. It's not going to end very well for the people blowing up the mountain. Surprise, surprise. And the reason that is, is because of the fact that as one of the older species on the general area and being so in tune with the land as they are, these are arguably one of the better manipulators of this magical source of power in the general area. The land is to them as water to a fish. They can move through it with no qualm whatsoever. If they don't want to be in your presence anymore, they're just gone. If they don't want you in their presence anymore, you're just gone. Hopefully to somewhere that has air. Well, yes, unless you're being particularly petulant, but that's besides the point. They mostly want to be left alone. I really like the idea of of one of these guys just going, 
and, and like standing up against a wall and just pretending not to be there anymore. I'm just I'm just picturing the Homer Simpson into the bushes gif, but yes. just into the cliff face. And that's actually incredibly accurate. Um, for those familiar with uh, Dungeons and Dragons, the tabletop role playing game, uh, there is an ability called Earth Glide that certain Earth elementals possess that allow them to seamlessly move across and through rock. And it is an ability that these creatures essentially share, obviously not a direct port, but because their control of the natural energy of the planet is so advanced and fine, they can basically make any sort of ground substance, soil, stone, putty in their hands. So if they want to walk through a mountain wall, they can walk through a mountain wall without an issue. Which, again, makes it really, really difficult to mine. If you, yeah, because if you don't give a crap and you're just going to go and blow up a mountainside, no matter what the earth cells think of you, you're not going to get very far. And if you are a person who really, really, really needs that stone or really, really needs that metal, but you want to be more considerate of the people that live there, well, you can't just go blow up a mountain because for all you know, you might be actually bombing an earth shell who happens to be passing through that part of the mountain at any given time. I mean, I, I, I think it's great because you're talking about that these guys are, you know, the less, the less documented of the races, but you still have a lot thought out for them and a lot developed. Is there anything... Like, what in particular made you take this route with them? Were there any particular influences or inspirations that you had that took you in this particular direction with the Earth Shells? I wanted something that could give the give that sort of ancient, sagely feel of other fantasy-type races. The, the very old wisdom... Uh, drawing a little bit of inspiration from like the Tolkien Ents where they're, they're in their own element and they don't really care much about the other things around them because they're so old. Right. To, to them, everything is orcs. Like it doesn't matter what you are. You're still an orc. And I, but I wanted something that wasn't necessarily as What's the word I'm looking for here? So I wanted something that was very intristical to the area, something that was very bound to the land itself, but was also something that was not immensely in your face about it. It's, it's not like... I wanted the opposite of the saying, can't see the forest for the trees. And... The other inspirations were the fact that when it comes to things like traditional elemental play, things like that, I myself have always been really drawn to the earth as an element, the strength of the land, the anger of an avalanche, you know, the, the, the timelessness of the mountains themselves, that these things could have lasted for so very long with so little that can actually influence them. Yes, water and wind will erode a mountain over time, but it's going to be a very, very, very long time. So you would say you identify with the earthbenders then? 
I love the Earthbenders. They're fantastic. <laughs> so, so you've developed how they interact with other other cultures by saying that they're xenophobes. Now, is there any way that you can that they, that anyone else can gain favor with them? And how do they communicate with other people if their own native language sounds like rocks crashing to us? So the first answer there is while they are very adverse to things like crowds, other civilizations, bustling metropolis, ridiculous amounts of noise and whatnot, they were noted as having a particular fondness for music. And that was actually how some of the first interactions with their people were documented for our dear human analogs of this area is they would be spotted kind of lurking around in the shadows when people were playing music, you know, for their little tribes and budding villages, you know, watching a singer as they're doing their washing in the river or something like that. They don't seem to necessarily loathe these other species for their noise and seem to be able to appreciate certain types of noise. As far as communicating goes, they can make use of the non-native language of their own people. It's just rough. <laughs> The, the best way I can describe it is picture something like an ant that has a very slow, methodical speech pattern, and then give them a mouthful of rocks. I was going to say, they have gravelly voices. Just a little bit. So in order to actually converse with other species, the other species has to be willing to hang around for a little while. Because, again, paraphrasing our dear friends, the Ents, it takes them a very long while to say something, and they don't say something unless it's worth saying. <laughs> and that and that tracks as well with what you were talking about, them being very, very ancient. If these people, it sounds almost like you're setting up, them up to be pretty much living rock. Am I, am I on track here with that? You're definitely on track. Um, I am unfortunately known among people like my co-host for being exceptionally coy with bits of information when I like to be. And also keeping in mind that we are conducting this uh, podcast with the knowledge that in the Xanthuru campaign that is coming up, Josh is going to be the GM, Monica and I are going to be two of the players, and you guys are hopefully going to be our listeners. And so he may not want to spoil us on certain things. Exactly. Um, so if you ever hear him say basically flat out, that's spoilers. Listen and find out. Exactly. So you're, you, you're creating this race that is either living stone or something akin to it has a very stone-like countenance that made no sense whatsoever. But sometimes that happens when you're talking world building. You say things that make no sense. Um, these people that are very stone-like or are actual stone, 
they are probably even not just as a people, but also as individuals, very old. If anyone were to hazard a guess. So if you have a being who is one, two, three thousand years old, and usually only hangs out around other one, two, three thousand year old entities, their perception of time and how long it is required in order to say something is going to be a little bit different from somebody's whose max lifespan is a hundred years. If that. That and also they would probably only want to say the things that are actually important. All of the thing they don't want to just sit and chat about the weather because it's all been said before. The weather is great and all, but we're due for another tectonic plate movement. <laughs> That's an event, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, this continent is forecast to be shifting. <laughs> you might want to hang on to the seat of your pants. I really like the idea that they're drawn to music. Um, they're like the idea that they like rhythms um is well i guess maybe not just rhythms but but that was what stuck in my mind when you said that um rhythms and vibrations and pitch it's it tracks very well with what was already established with the way they experience sound right exactly that was the intent so i i really wanted with all of the things that I created to give just that little dash of dichotomy that makes things a little more interesting. Yeah, because living beings are complex. No creature or race is going to be a one note thing. Anyone who tells you otherwise is probably a racist. Right, exactly. And while obviously that can happen, uh, I wanted to avoid making it, you know, a uh, a racial feature, so to speak. Uh, but again, going back to the original topic of conversation of was how do these things affect the world around them? If you have these ancient, potentially living stones themselves that have essentially utter mastery over the land itself that make it next to impossible to mine for any sort of precious ore, gemstone anything like that you're going to be creating a shortage in the immediate area and as such that means that pretty much any other culture out there in the immediate vicinity where these things live have no access to metals supply and demand and if these beings are thousands of years old which they might be and if they're xenophobic and don't care much for other races, which is definitely the case, they're probably not going to give a crap about any amount of money that you offer them to retrieve the metal for you. Exactly. I mean, if these things live in the land and have the access that they do to all of the gold and silver veins, what good is more gold and silver going to do them? which brings up another point for this general chunk of the world that we've been focusing on so far is the fact that since there is no market, so to speak of, for precious metals like gold, silver, platinum, what have you, that means it's not a currency system. It has no real value to the cultures in the surrounding areas because nobody can get a hold of it. It's not that it is, you know, of the highest value. It's that 
if nobody can get a hold of it, then it has no real value, which means they would have had to focus exclusively on things like barter or come up with a different currency system. Which we've seen happen in our own world, uh, you know, people using shells as currency. After a while, a society will, you know, they'll start with bartering. But once you've reached a certain amount of development, usually other systems take hold over time. Mm -hmm. Especially when the cost of produ producing currency becomes greater than the actual value of the currency itself. Like, if you're thinking about our, our society, there's uh, many countries that have gotten rid of their penny because it is costs way too much to produce for the value you get out of it yeah last i checked it was roughly five cents to make a penny yeah so horribly wasteful yeah so we have this like cities are going to develop countries are going to develop the people are going to need some form of currency but again coming into the typical fantasy standard of gold silver copper coins they don't have access to that and the few times that you're able to get gold you're probably not going to want to waste it making money you're going to create something of greater purpose with that rare resource something of cultural value rather than of monetary value not to mention is that it has other implications as well because stop and look at how did we define human development throughout history bronze age the advent of the ironworks with the industrial evolution we as earth society put a lot of importance on when our developing cultures had access to tools and resources made from certain materials and so if you remove those kinds of materials from the immediate vicinity of the development of cultures you're looking at a human analog who never would have been able to have a bronze age because they can't get a hold of bronze. They couldn't have had an iron age because they can't get a hold of iron. So what do they do? And that is where this network of energy comes back into play because surprise, surprise, one of the things that people's learned to do with this resource that they had available was to transmute one substance to another. And so, okay, we can't get access to this very hard metal that's in the mountains to make weapons and armor to defend ourselves from against attackers. Uh, we got plenty of mud, though. Why don't we make the mud into metal? Might not be as strong or as durable as the real thing, but it gets the job done. Now, when you transmute, is it a true transmutation or it, does it retain the sort of, I guess, durability of what original material it was? So for the most part, and I'm not saying that there aren't exceptions, with this system of magic that we have been establishing in this world, when you change one substance into another, some levels of properties are retained. Now, the more proficient you are at the manipulation, the more of that you can mitigate. But if you make a broadsword, let's say, out of clay, and then reshape it into steel, 
that steel sword is going to be just a smidge softer than actual steel. Just a little bit more prone to water damage because it was originally mud. When you transform one thing to an, into another with this energy source, it retains just a hint of what it was. Which is important for a lot of reasons. Not only does it bring good flavor to the table, but anything that you put in your world in order to solve a problem should have some kind of cost to it. If transmuting clay into metal were a perfect process and any old apprentice mage could do it, no problem, then what's the point of limiting the metal in the world? He would have undone all of the great world building he'd done with the earth shells not allowing people to have access to metal by immediately perfectly solving the problem. Instead of that, he gives them a solution to the problem. It is not a perfect solution, but it's one that works, and it one, it's one that brings an interesting and unique flavor to the world. My question is, these people developed a way to transmute clay into metal in order to make tools. But if metal is so limited, how did they get the thought of making metal tools in the first place? Were they maybe gifted some by the earth shells? Like, hey, you get these guys are struggling a little bit. Let's give them stuff so they quit dying. Or if they didn't care, did someone just happen upon a, a vein of metal that was close enough to the ground that they were able to mine it? So there's a couple of different ways this response can be approached. Most of us know there was the gold rush in human society. You can, in very small amounts, find stuff like gold in things like riverbeds from where it washed down mountainsides and things of that nature over extremely long periods of time. But obviously, if you're only finding very trace small amounts of gold, not going to really do you much good, and you're not going to make a tool out of gold. Unless you're playing Terraria. Or Animal Crossing. And even then, it's not going to do you much good. It'll still break eventually. And given that gold is a very soft metal, more frequently than you'd think. <laughs> but uh, with human culture or the human analog culture in this particular area, there was an event that single-handedly altered the course of their development as a people. And that singular event was actually involving one of the other species that reside in this area. The, uh, the kind of jerks of the, of the continent, not quite oldest, kind of the middle child probably explains why they act out as much as they do. So the rebellious middle child. So there, what you're saying is that there was, there was in fact a catalyst for this. We just haven't gotten to it yet. Correct. And like all great catalysts, uh, it's brought about by conflict. And if you're looking for a source of conflict in this particular pocket of the world, you won't find much more prone to it than the Onyrek, who are still, to this day, 
speaking in terms of timelines from ancient past to where the podcast will be taking place. A very nomadic hunter-gatherer species who very much embody the age-old principle of survival of the fittest. They are big, they are brutish, they are stronger than you, and if they are stronger than you, they are going to take what they want because it belongs to them. And that's just how it is. But what if I want it more than he does? You are welcome to try. (laughs) And I mean that. The Onyurek were a species that I developed because I really wanted something that could replace the idea of the orc or the troll or your stereotypical big brutish fantasy race that wasn't inherently evil. Because you run into that a lot. It's like, oh, hey, these are the orcs. They're evil. They're God. Totally evil. He's you know, got a bit of a reason to be mean, but still evil. Just evil, evil, evil. I don't really ever like the idea that, and again, this is calling back to systems like D&D and whatnot, where because you are born a member of a specific race, your alignment is set to a certain range. Nothing is inherently made or born evil. It doesn't work like that. All villains have motivation. However, what you do have are a species that developed over a period of time who are stronger than everything else, more durable than everything else. And when it comes to contesting over resources, that very heavily weighs in their favor. So as far as the Onyurek are concerned, they are humanoid shape, standard two arms, two legs, head with massive branching horns from their head that they take a great deal of pride in. Kept very clean, ornamented. They don't dress very complicated at all because they mostly work with hides and things of that nature because they don't really believe in sticking around one spot for too long. They move in, they take the resources they need, the resources start to run low, they move somewhere else because somewhere else has more resources. And if you happen to be the one who owns those resources i wish you the best of luck the grass is always greener yeah the the grass is greener where we have not trampled it down so for them ownership is transient it is not a permanent thing it is this guy has this thing now but that could potentially change if i want this thing it will become my thing as you may imagine from what i've been talking about of them so far they are not the most culturally advanced people They are very simple. They don't fuss too much about things like establishing settlements, raising cattle, developing agriculture, things like that. They find what they need to survive, and if they have to take it, they take it. Because if they weren't meant to have it, someone would stop them. Because if they're strong enough, they can take whatever they want. And if you can't stop them, then that means you weren't meant to have the thing. So you earn your right to have things by being strong. Correct. Strength is everything, actually. Being the strong race, being, you know, the one that maybe doesn't settle down and build cities does not necessarily mean that they are stupid. No, uh, they're not stupid per se. They obviously don't take much stock 
in things like the ability to read, the ability to write, things like mathematics. They understand things in the most basic aspects of, I need this much food to survive. I will obtain this much food so that I may continue to survive. They, they know algebra by doing it rather than by studying it. Pretty much. If they need a tool for a job, they figure out how to achieve said result with the quickest means possible. This tree is in my way. I could take the time to sharpen a stone to make an axe to cut the tree down, or I could just punch it off its roots. That's one way to do it. You might have some bloody knuckles after that, but... If you're strong enough... (laughs) If you're strong enough and if you're durable enough, and that's another detail, is these guys have very thick, durable skin. It's uh, very similar to snake skin, actually, in the way that it appears very smooth and uniform at a glance. But when you look very closely at it, such as when said knuckles are coming towards your face, you find that there are very, very many small scales interlocked together that provide pretty decent amount of defense. So they don't bother with making armor then? No, I mean, they don't need it. If they're stronger than you, you're not going to hurt them. (laughs) It also has interesting implications for the lives of the other people around there, because obviously if you're a farmer, you're not going to want to park your farm somewhere that the Onirek might come through and take everything that you own. But on the other hand, if a group of Onirek decided to punch their way through a particular forest and you as a farmer are looking for a new plot of land, hey, this area is all torn up and soft because all the tree trunks were ripped up, and we know that there's good life energy here because there's a bunch of trees growing, which means that there's also water, and this field has pretty much been tilled for me. Exactly. Would you also say then that the Onirek have an oral history as well, an oral tradition, since they don't put stock in reading and writing, they would still need a way to pass lessons from one generation to another? I'm so glad you asked that question, because now we're going to get into my favorite aspect of these people. They are storytellers. It is absolutely pretty much everything to them. The way they developed as a people is with oral tradition. Because they don't subscribe to the concept of a name, so to speak. Like, hi, I'm Josh. Okay, what the heck is a Josh? What does that tell me about this person? Absolutely nothing. Now, of course, with the study of languages and history and whatnot, there are supposedly meanings behind different names and yada, yada, yada. They don't care about that in the least. It doesn't tell them anything about you or what you've done. It's, it's not useful information in the least. What they do instead is speak of themselves with a usually brief history of their deeds usually brief well let's be fair the stronger something is the more it's going to be able to accomplish which means they have more additives to their to their quote-unquote names and so you can always tell 
who the strongest guy among an Onurek tribe is by a couple of factors. One, he's going to have more little ornaments in his horns. Hornaments, if you will. <laughs> and two, it's going to take the longest for him to say who he is. Because he will have many, many achievements of which he is very proud of. And that is the second aspect of their pride and strength as a people is not only does their physical strength matter, but the strength of their achievements, the strength of their story, the strength of their legacy. If you take two individuals who have both completed exactly two great tasks, tree render is not going to be nearly as important as peak jumper. This guy ripped one single tree out of the ground with one strike. Okay, that's cool. That's strong. That's important. We know that this guy can punch one tree off of its root network. This guy over here jumped straight from one mountain peak to another. Now, I don't know if you're too familiar with mountains. Those are pretty distant. It's a very long jump. And further, keep in mind, this is an area of the world where there are people living in the mountains who don't like other things in the mountains. So not only did Peak Jumper cross a very far distance in a single jump, but he did so and managed to get away from the earth shells in the process. The thing I find really interesting is the, the places that they would be exchanging these names or these, these accomplishments is also sort of another uh, show of strength because the longer they take to say their name, their enemy could be attacking them or whatever. Uh, but they have the strength to stand and say, these are all of the things I have accomplished. Please come at me, bro. It wasn't there at the time, unfortunately, but the, the most fascinating recent analog that I have to compare the Onyurek's oral pride so to speak, is the singular line from Moana and Maui's little th self theme strong. The tapestry here on my skin is the map of the victories I win. And Onyurek's legacy, their power is in their name and who they are and what they have achieved. And you are going to respect that. And that brings about the flip side of the coin in that because they take such great pride in their name, in their legacy, in their oral tradition, and making sure that other people know of it, they love to tell stories about themselves, about their ancestors, about who they are connected to, because in that their own legacy is strengthened. It's not just important to be an accomplished individual, but you come from a line of accomplished individuals. And to have stories and, and to have stories told of you after you're dead. Exactly. To be important enough to be referenced by someone else who has come after you. And this is where I decided to add that little dash of dichotomy that I've been striving for with these creations so far is that for all these guys are strength is everything survival of the fittest. I want this thing, so it's going to be mine because I'm stronger than you. 
because of the importance of them, of their oral tradition and their names as they are, and their legacy and their story and their love of storytelling, they do not abide by liars. You can tell a fantastic story about yourself or your father or your mother or your grandfather or your brother, however you want to do it. You can elaborate a little, maybe stretch the truth a tiny bit, but never, ever, ever lie. If it's found out that you have claimed to do something that you did not actually accomplish, your horns will be broken from your head and you will be cast out. And there is nothing that the Unrek hate more than a hornless. And that is more or less their greatest and most grievous insult for anyone and anything. If you are hornless, you are worse than dead to them because it means that your word and the strength of your name cannot be trusted. And because of that, and because of their importance of their oral tradition and their hatred of liars, there was, and it still is, a very important way of dealing with these people. Because again, they take what they want. And for most things, they're going to do that because you can't stop them. But because they love that honor in their name and in their achievements, they love a challenge. And so if you can challenge them to something and succeed, you get the free pass. So are they competitive by nature, I guess, is the question. Highly. Because obviously, if you can beat someone at something, your name is better than them. Right. You are stronger than them. You can be held above them. And that's why the oral tradition to them is so important is because that's how you determine the pecking order. That's how you establish the hierarchy is, well, okay, not only is this my long list of accomplishments, but I've also beaten this guy. So I find this really interesting for one, because I've studied a little bit of anthropology. I also just finished a class that was entirely focused on folklore, um, which is just a really fascinating piece of any culture for me in general. But it makes me wonder, do the Onurek have any like coming of age rituals that are like competitive in nature where they're they're determined to be an adult when they've they've completed a task that gives them a name yeah how do you earn your first name it's entirely up to the individual the the way that it works is the individual has to achieve something that they not only feel is worthy of a name but be able to convince the peers, the chieftain, you know, at, at basically the entirety of the tribe that it was a task worthy of calling themselves by it. And that continues to highlight the importance of the oral tradition, because not only is it important for them to pass this information on and hold it as part of themselves, but to be able to properly convey it. To be able to actually craft a story about themselves in the same way that their ancestors have crafted stories about themselves and passed it on to the next generation. Exactly. 
Now, can somebody can names be given to them by somebody else? Like, say you witness an Onirek winning a fight against seven other guys. Can you hail them as, you know, defeated the seven strongest and they accept it as a name or do they have to take it for themselves? Well, let me answer that question with a question. What do you think the answer to that is? I think, oh, that's a good question. Because on one hand, if it's good enough that other people would recognize them for it, then obviously it's good enough for them to claim for themselves. And they want something, they take something. They take something, yeah. So my, so that's my theory, is that they, they have to claim it themselves in order for that to be their name. Bingo. How would they respond to somebody who, like, who told that, who would, who, like, would witness one of their deeds and say, hey, that's worthy of a name? So there are a couple of different ways that it could be responded to, and that's going to depend largely upon the individual who has accomplished the deed. If you're dealing with a more mm, even tempered member of the tribes, there's a possibility that they'll agree. They could say something to the effect of, uh, I see that you are strong enough to recognize that this too is who I am. It's sort of like, oh, hey, you picked up on a part of my name that I have not claimed yet, but I'm going to, so good on you. But it is... It would be very difficult even for the most even-tempered of the tribes for someone else to try and give them a name. Because, again, it's all about them claiming what they want to claim about themselves. And so if, if you see someone doing something very impressive and incredible, it's something that they would have to agree on. Like, yeah, you just watch, watch this guy stomp the ever-loving hell out of an entire platoon of soldiers. But if he does not think that it's impressive enough for him to claim as part of his name, it's essentially insulting him to say that it should be. So be very careful when trying to compliment a known with name-related stuff. Exactly. Because, go figure, the last thing you want to do is offend one of these guys. Yeah, they're stronger than you. And go figure, if you offend someone that is stronger than you, it is within their right to make you stop talking. And let's be fair. I am painting a rather grim picture of these guys. They do seem like colossal jerks. But it's not necessarily that they're all bad. It's just the way their culture developed and the fact that in the grand hierarchy of things, they don't care as much about this energy source that runs through the area. They don't have great manipulators of this lay energy because it's not something they can see. It's not something they can actually grasp with their hands and claim as their own. And it's not something they can keep either. So it doesn't matter as much. Yes, it makes other resources grow and they care about other resources, 
but you're not going to find one of them focusing on figuring out how to make something grow because it takes too much time. There's a field right over there. It's got a ton of crops. I'm just going to take those instead. Yeah. And what I like about these guys too, is that you see a lot of this style of race, you know, the hunter gatherers, the, I take what I want, the, you know, the guys with the horns, with the sharp teeth, you see them portrayed a lot in fantasy settings as the cannon fodder. They are there to be bad and raid and pillage and be fought by the knights on white horses. But in this case, they are a catalyst for development in the world. You know, they come and punch a forest down, a farmer can plant their crops. But also, there's only so many times you can have an Onirek tribe swing by and take your crops before you start trying to figure out how to get them to not take your crops. Whether it's offering them, hey, I will give you as many crops as you want if you stay here and fight off the other guys who try to take it, which may or may not have worked, but I'm guessing somebody has tried it. Or, hey, let's build a city and put walls around our houses so they don't burn down everything we have. Oh, look, society has advanced to the next level. Achievement unlocked. And there's also other options, too. As I mentioned, they love a challenge. But they also don't grasp some concepts as strongly as other species grasp them. So depending on the way you phrase your challenge, you can win without actually having to be stronger than them. Because at the end of the day, that's what matters the most to them is proving that one person is better than the other that one thing is more fit to have the thing that they want than they are. So let's say you have a tribe of Onurek swinging in through the countryside. Hey, there's this farm. Crops are ready for picking. Farmer, you know, meets them at the edge of the field, finds the, the head of the tribe. We're going to take your crops. No, you're not. I'm stronger than you. Well, prove it. Okay, I'm so much stronger than you that there's something that I can carry across this field that you would have no hope of carrying. That sounds like a worthy challenge. Prove it. The farmer gets his wheelbarrow, points to the chieftain and says, hop in. True to his word, the, the farmer can carry the chieftain across the field in the wheelbarrow. But there is no way for the chieftain to repeat the same act. I love it. And it's not lying. It's not. He was able to carry something that the chieftain himself could not carry across the field. And as such, his crops are safe. But were they safe that one time or did the were they were they like cool from then on? Well, I mean, that really depends. Uh, you have a people who are very much, I want the thing, I'm going to take the thing. Oh, we can't take this thing. This guy is stronger than our chieftain. We need a stronger chieftain. There is that. Or, okay, let's try over here instead. This man has proven himself stronger. He has the right to these crops. We cannot take these because he is stronger than us. They may be jerks. They may be strong. They may believe in survival of the fittest. But 
a challenge was made, a challenge was answered, and they're going to adhere to that. But you do raise a good point. You can only have a raid happen so many times before you're trying to figure out how do we stop this from happening? Or even worse, before somebody gets really, really, really fed up. Because again, when you're dealing with a world where there are literal conduits of power running through the ground, underneath it, around it, however you want to visualize it, it's not exactly a concrete thing. And that power can be drawn upon by the living things in the immediate area. If you push somebody far enough, they might do something that surprises you. But that's a topic for another episode, because we are all out of time for today. So, uh, yeah, it looks like uh, next time we'll be getting into the rest of the races that inhabit this fine bit of land that is the Alterin continent. And uh, maybe just a, a little bit of uh, history. Thank you guys so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. If you would like to contact us, you can do so by sending us an email at worldbuilders at rhino.net. You can also tweet us at Rhinobot Studios. We would love to answer your questions on the air. Just be advised that we do record these episodes a really long time in advance. So it may be a little while before you actually hear your question on the air, but we will read and answer viewer questions when we start receiving them. Uh, so please reach out. We would love to hear from you. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. This show is a member of the Rhinobot Studios family. For more information, including show listings, team member bios, social media links, and our community discord, please visit rhinobot.net.